1: If the court comes to see the SG as simply another political player from the executive branch, I think that's an institutional problem going forward for the office.
2: We call this the, the, the gross spectacle of a divided defense, um, which I think is not just a threat to, to Mr. McCoy's uh, liberty, but, but really to the legitimacy of the criminal justice system itself. Can we even call it assistance of counsel? Is that what it is when a lawyer overrides that person's wishes?
0: Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the lower courts and the law. This week, the high court will roll into its long break, so things will be dark on Maryland Avenue next week. But the court did hear arguments this very week in a case involving a Louisiana death row inmate who wants a new trial because, oh, his lawyer told the jury he was guilty. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to veteran Supreme Court correspondent Linda Greenhouse about some of the shifts that have happened in the Solicitor General's office and the Justice Department in the Trump era. And I also felt that I needed to note here that just hours after we wrapped last show about an Ohio voting purge, the president's vote fraud commission was disbanded. You may remember we kept putting that commission in air quotes. It seems amicus air quotes get results. But first, we're going to pop into oral arguments that took place this past Wednesday in a really interesting case about whether a defendant's own lawyer has afforded him effective assistance of counsel when he keeps telling the jury that his client did it. And he's telling the jury his client did it over the repeated insistence by the client that, no, I'm innocent. Joining us to walk us through this case is Jay Schweikert. He's a policy analyst with the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. His research and advocacy focuses on accountability for prosecutors and police and Sixth Amendment trial rights. And he was co-author of an amicus brief filed on behalf of the capital defendant in this case, McCoy versus Louisiana. Jay, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Um, and I realized that was a bit of a flip characterization of the facts of the case, but that's the case, right?
2: Yes, I think that's the basic issue. Um, here we had a defendant who uh, insisted that he was innocent, that he was uh, that uh, he didn't kill his family members, that he was actually out of the state at the time of the murders. And his attorney uh, told the jury that he was guilty over his express objection. Um, so I think it is it is a, a you know, very basic but important issue. Uh, and so I think that you stated it correctly.
0: So so will you – the facts of the case are, are quite horrifying and I think we could both stipulate that uh, the evidence against uh, Robert McCoy was pretty damning. But will you just talk us through before we uh, dive into the question, the, the, the sort of question on the merits? Can you talk us through the crime itself?
2: Sure. Um, so – uh, Robert McCoy uh, was charged with the uh, murders of three of his family members in 2008. These were the mother, the stepfather, and the son of his estranged wife. Um, and this was in uh, Bossier City, Louisiana, um, and there definitely was, you know, if you look at the state's brief, it looks like there is a lot of circumstantial evidence against Mr. McCoy. Uh, that there's no doubt about that. I think it's, um, you know, I think we have to be careful about evaluating how strong the evidence was against him on this record, because of course. This is an untested record, um, and we have the state's <clears throat> supposition about what sort of the relevant facts were, but this was never tested by a defense attorney who was you know putting the state to its burden. So I think we have to be careful about how much we read into that. but uh, so Mr. McCoy, um, despite the circumstantial evidence against him, uh, said that he was out of the state at the time of these murders, and he attributed the murders to a to police to corrupt police officers and thought that the evidence against him was the result of a police conspiracy. Uh, And he proposed, he said that he had witnesses who would support this alibi that would support um, him being out of state at the time of the murders. Uh, He was originally appointed uh, public defenders, um, but he ultimately dismissed them because they refused to uh, support his subpoenas for these witnesses for his alibi defense because they thought this wasn't plausible. Uh, He was then... uh, qualified to represent himself. Um, defendants have a constitutional right to self-representation, and he was trying to pursue that at one point, point. And, and the court said that he was mentally competent to do that. Uh, but then his family retained another attorney, Larry English, to represent him. Uh, and Larry English, like the public defenders, um, didn't think that this alibi defense was plausible and didn't support his subpoenas for these witnesses. Uh, so there was a bit of conflict between him and Mr. English um, throughout a lot of uh, their uh, representation. But then the key, the key change here is that 16 days before trial, Mr. English tells Mr. McCoy for the first time, I'm going to tell the jury that you are guilty. Uh, there's too much evidence against you. Uh, the, the best that we can do to avoid the death penalty, because this was a capital case, the best that we can do is to admit you were responsible for these murders, uh, but try to argue sort of a diminished mental state, hopefully to avoid the death penalty and get life in prison instead. And, and to be fair, this is not an inherently unreasonable strategy. This is something that attorneys sometimes do in capital cases because capital cases often do involve overwhelming evidence. But here, Mr. McCoy said, absolutely not. Do not do that. I am innocent. You are not telling the jury that I killed my family members. Um, and so that's sort of where they left it between the two of them. And then two days before trial, there was a pre-trial conference. Um and here uh, Mr. McCoy tells the judge, and again, this is the first time that he's been before the judge since he's learned what Mr. what his lawyer's planning to do, and tells the judge, you know, he, I'm I'm not guilty. He, I don't want him to be my lawyer. He can't tell them I did this. Uh he requests a continuance to get a new lawyer, and the judge denies it. Um he then asks to represent himself again, which of course the judge had already said he could do, but the judge denied that as well, and then basically told Mr. English, you know, you're the attorney. You have to proceed as you think, uh, as you see fit. And then, so at trial in the opening statement, uh, you know, his lawyer gets up and says, I'm, I'm telling you right now, my client killed these people. Uh, Mr. McCoy objects and interrupts him, uh, and, you know, asks tells, says again to the judge, you know, this is unconstitutional what he's doing. He's selling me out. Mr. McCoy takes the stand at trial himself to present his alibi defense and defend his innocence. And he is cross-examined and impeached by mr. English, by his own attorney uh, who is trying to you know under basically trying to get mr. McCoy you know to acknowledge that he was responsible for these murders and uh, he actually he, uh, his, the cross-examination brings in more evidence against McCoy than the state itself had been able to introduce uh, it brings in evidence about mr. McCoy's uh, suicide attempts after the after the murders it brings in evidence. Uh, about phone records for a phone that was allegedly in his possession. Uh, So not only is his attorney not defending Mr. McCoy, but he's actually bringing in more evidence for the state's case than the state itself could have introduced. And then at closing arguments, again, you know, he tells the the jury again, my client is guilty. He even says, I am purporting, I am relieving you of the burden. I'm relieving the state of its burden. My client is guilty of second-degree murder. Uh, unsurprisingly, the jury convicts him. Uh, and and the strategy, the mitigation strategy fails, and they return three unanimous death sentences. So Mr. McCoy is then sentenced to death.
0: Now, I want to be fair here, Jay, and say that an awful lot of uh, capital defense lawyers will tell you, uh, look, this is not an uncommon strategy, right? I'm trying to get this jury to trust me. And I feel like it's not an unreasonable thing to say, hey, you know, we're gonna just fess up that he did it because we're building a relationship here. And I think it's strategically not smart uh to get up and just start claiming innocence. So so this is not uncommon as strategies go to try to sort of foster a bond of of truth and veracity with the jury, right?
2: I think that's I think that's exactly right. Um, it is a strategy that is often employed in capital cases. Um, and that's why I think the, the right framework for this case is not about whether this was effective assistance of counsel, right? It's not, it's not a question of his attorney having just been, you know, made really stupid arguments or botched the defense. Um, if, if that had been the goal, I think his attorney actually did a reasonably good job. It's a question about defendant autonomy. It's a question about who decides. Um, because even though this is not just a strategic question, right, this isn't like what evidence to introduce, which witnesses to call. Uh, it's about what Mr. McCoy's ultimate goal is. Um, Mr. English's goal was to avoid the death penalty at all costs. That wasn't Mr. McCoy's goal. His goal was to vindicate his innocence. His goal was not to suffer the social opprobrium of saying in open court, I killed three of my family members. And that's a value judgment. Uh, There's obviously a strategy question there, but it's ultimately about what the client's objectives were in this case. Um, And here, I think what happened was Mr. English substituted his own objective, which is a reasonable one, uh, but he substituted that for Mr. McCoy's goal. So that's, that's what I think, you know, that, that was the, uh, the framework that we were trying to get the court to understand this and, and that's sort of how we framed our amicus brief was this is about defendant autonomy, not about whether his lawyer, you know, did a good job.
0: And I think it's important just for for listeners who aren't entirely sure what track we're on uh what jay is saying here is look there is the sixth amendment uh right to have the quote assistance of counsel for his defense and 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 what you're saying is if 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 I understand you correctly and this is what is in your brief, is that framing it strictly as, uh, you know, was my lawyer drunk? Did he sleep through trial like a standard Strickland? You know, was he competent? That's not the question here. Of course he was competent. That's what you're saying.
2: That's exactly right. Um, And and I think that the state's position here is not, uh, you know, that this is always okay. The state's position is that they they would like the court to treat this as an ineffective assistance claim. They want the court to look at, you know, was this a reasonable strategy? Uh, you know, did the attorney do do a good job? And, um, you know, even if he didn't, was there prejudice to the client? And what we're saying is that's not the right framework for this case. I'm perfectly happy to concede that English did the best job that he could in a difficult circumstance. and um, And to be fair to him... Uh, in he was in Louisiana, which is in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And there actually is some law in the Fifth Circuit suggesting that in this situation where there's a conflict between the defendant and the attorney, the attorney should get to make this call. Um, so I can understand why he thought he had to do this. But what we're saying is that the fundamental guarantee of the Sixth Amendment is that the defendant has the right to a personal defense and has the right to make the sort of fundamental decision about whether to admit guilt to a jury.
0: So before we get to oral argument, uh, one more thing I'm going to ask you to do. Describe what happens in the court below, in the Louisiana Supreme Court. And, and maybe also, um, can you frame this case in terms of there is precedent in this case. We talk about it a lot. Florida v. Nixon, which says uh, you know that lawyers uh, do, need, do not need to get uh, express consent, right? So, so can, can you talk about uh, how – what Nixon says – and then, how the court below uh, interpreted that to get to the result that they did before we get to oral arguments?
2: Sure. <clears throat> so um, and, and I'll also just lay out uh, sort of a little bit more legal background here. We know that that even when a, uh, a defendant accepts the assistance of counsel, the, the Supreme Court has already said there are certain fundamental decisions that the uh, defendant gets to make. And these include things like whether to enter a guilty plea, whether to waive the right to a jury trial whether to testify at trial and what to say, and whether to take an appeal. And so in some ways, the question is whether admitting guilt to a jury falls in this category. So now, Florida v. Nixon is a 2004 Supreme Court case that is superficially similar here on the facts, where you had a defendant in a capital case, and his attorney thought that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt and uh, thought the best strategy was a mitigation concession strategy to, to admit responsibility but argue against the death penalty. He consulted with his client on it, but there uh, Nixon neither consented nor objected. He was largely unresponsive and didn't really offer guidance to his attorney either way. And so after consulting with his client, uh, his attorney ultimately at trial did follow the strategy and did admit guilt and he was convicted. And the when that case went before the Supreme Court uh, the court said in a unanimous eight-0 opinion by Justice Ginsburg that the 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 attorney did not need to get express consent there are certain decisions where you do need express consent you have to get express consent to enter a guilty plea you can't do that uh, if your client does unless your client specifically tells you to but here you know if you consulted with your client um, and they didn't say one way or another uh, it you know it's something that you can It's not inherently problematic. And then that would be evaluated as a basic ineffective assistance. Was it reasonable or not? And there, the court said it was reasonable. The court specifically reserved the question of whether you could do this over the client's express objection, which is, of course, the case we have here. Mr. McCoy vociferously objected to this strategy at every stage of the proceedings.
0: Just to clarify, Jay, a lawyer is precluded from pleading guilty over his client's objection, you're saying this wasn't about the plea. This was just the lawyer asserting over and over again that he did it, right?
2: That's correct. Uh, we already know it's very clear that a, uh, a lawyer cannot enter any plea of guilt, uh, whether it's a capital case or not. You can never enter a guilty plea without your client's express consent. Uh, now, what the court decided in Florida v. Nixon is that admitting guilt in a jury trial is not like that for the purpose of of having to receive express consent you we you don't have to get express consent to admit guilt before a jury because in that case the you know there's still a trial you still have the rest of your trial rights the government still has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt uh, whereas a guilty plea is itself a conviction but what we're saying is that uh that you know, I mean, I think Nixon was rightly decided, but it's completely different where you have a lawyer admitting guilt over the defendant's express objection. And so even, those, even though I think those are different for the purposes of whether you have to get express consent or not, I think functionally they're, they're similar in that you are def- denying the defendant the right to defend their own innocence. Because what jury is going to fail to convict when the defendant's own advocate is confessing their guilt in front of them? you are uh, overriding a client's decision as opposed to doing the best you can when the client doesn't give you any guidance. Um, But so nevertheless, at the Louisiana Supreme Court, they took the Nixon decision as meaning that because you don't need the client's express consent, it's just not in this category of fundamental decisions for the defendant. Uh, so it's just, it's just a basic ineffective assistance question. And the court spent a lot of time looking at the, you know, reasonableness of Mr. McCoy's actions. Um, and actually there was even a concurrence in that ca- that case by one of the Louisiana Supreme Court justices basically saying, I just want to state how great a job Mr. English did. He was in a really tough spot and this was the best he could do. Um, wh- one of the concerns that the Louisiana Supreme Court had is they seem to think that it would have violated uh, Mr. English's professional responsibility to the court to proceed with a defense that he knew to be uh, 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 f- false, right, or to put on testimony that would be that he thought would be perjury. And I think what that um, sort of confuses is is what the what the constitutional issue is here. Mr. McCoy is not demanding on appeal; he's not saying he has the right to affirmatively demand that his attorney. Make particular arguments. He he can't. He can't direct his attorney to say, "I want you to call these witnesses and present this defense." Um, That's not what he's claiming. All he's saying is what the attorney can't do, and the attorney can't affirmatively admit guilt to a charged crime over his objection. So I think that that issue was causing a little bit of confusion at the Louisiana Supreme Court because they were. I think they understood Mr. McCoy to be demanding the right to present this particular alibi defense. Uh, but I think now it's very clear that that's not the constitutional uh, right he's demanding.
0: So, so I want to be really clear that the jury is witnessing throughout McCoy's trial this kind of spectacle that is not contemplated in Nixon where you know the lawyer keeps asserting one thing and McCoy keeps – as you said, vociferously saying, I do not agree to this. The jury is witnessing uh, this open conflict between McCoy and his own attorney that uh, is obviously shaping the way they're thinking about this case too, right?
2: In, in our brief, uh, we call this uh, the gr- the gross spectacle of a divided defense, um, which I think is not just a threat to to Mr. McCoy's uh, liberty, but, but really to the legitimacy of the criminal justice system itself. Um, you know, our, you know, the Anglo-Saxon legal heritage is the adversarial system, right? And especially in criminal cases, you know, the storied history of criminal justice in this country is the jury trial where you had have adversarial testing of evidence and a presumption of innocence uh, where the defendant has an advocate uh, committed to them to, to putting the state to its burden of proof. Um, and without that, I think you don't have criminal justice. Um, and here... You know, I, I'd be curious to sort of see what the jury thought of this, but I, I have to imagine that a jury seeing the defendant's own advocate basically give them up, uh, you know, sort of undermines what we think the jury trial in this country is supposed to be. Um, I think it's one of, that's one of the reasons that the Cato Institute was was really interested in getting involved in this case because we're very concerned about the diminishing jury trial uh, in this country generally. Um, just as a brief aside. Um, Uh, Over 95% of criminal cases in this country are not uh, resolved at a jury trial, but through plea bargaining, Um, which I find very concerning because there you don't have this testing of evidence. You just have guilt that's admitted but never proven. Um, And that's a difficult problem to solve, but I think the least we could do is not discourage trials even more than we already have. And if we sort of enshrine this rule that, well, if the defendant, if the attorney disagrees with the defendant about whether, you know, innocence is a good strategy or not. They can basically just offer up the defendant uh, with a concession of guilt. I think that that, you know, not only undermines the defendant's rights, but strikes at what the adversarial system itself is supposed to be.
0: Now, the other side says, uh, not entirely unreasonably, you are going to open the floodgates to every single death penalty defendant saying, oh, I disagreed with my lawyer. Therefore, I get a new trial. I think the oral argument then becomes In principle, what happened to Mr. McCoy is awful, but where are we going to draw the line? And so let's listen for a minute to Elizabeth Merle. She's Louisiana's Solicitor General, and she's trying to argue that, at least in some cases, uh, lawyers need to be able to override their client's wishes. In a narrow class of death penalty cases, counsel sometimes might be required to override his client on a trial strategy when the tra- strategy that the that the client wants counsel to pursue is a feudal charade, and requires him that to defeat both their objectives of defeating the death penalty. Jay, my question to you is: um, How does her uh, feudal charade language go over at oral
2: argument? So I think there was there was quite a bit of skepticism about that because uh, again, I, I think it's I think it's difficult to establish what is a feudal charade or not until you've put the state to its burden. Um, I actually want to focus on on another part of what she said, which was the shared objective of avoiding the death penalty. I think that was a point that a lot of the justices pushed back on um, because Mr. McCoy's objective wasn't avoiding the death penalty at all costs. His objective was uh, vindicating his innocence and not suffering the social opprobrium of saying, I killed my family. Um, so that was the objective that his attorney had. Um, but it wasn't the objective that Mr. McCoy had. And so I think that framing by the state uh, ignores that this isn't just about strategy. This is about a value judgment. This is what does Mr. McCoy care about the most? What are the objectives of representation here? Uh, and I think that, that I was very encouraged Um to hear uh, responses, especially from Justice Kagan, I think she really, she really grabbed onto this point and pushed back on it, as, as, and the Chief Justice did as well. Um, so that to me is kind of the heart of the case. Uh, you know, it's not about, it, this wasn't a question of, of how, it was a question of what, right? What was the ultimate goal? Um, and so, so that I think is what caused uh, the most pushback from the justices on the state's position.
0: Well, let's play a little bit of Elena Kagan because I think that she was trying uh, to capture both that these are not shared goals and also uh, how this puts the lawyer in what she calls a terrible position. So let's play her for a moment. You, you just have conflicting objectives. I mean I totally understand that this lawyer was in a terrible position because this lawyer wants to defeat the death penalty and he has a client who says that's not my goal here. But the question is, when that happens, does the lawyer have to step back and say, you know what, that's not his goal. His goal is to avoid admitting that he killed his family members. Uh, Jay, so you're, what you're telling me is that when you have, you know, both conservatives and liberals on the court conceding that uh, these are not, in fact, uh, shared goals, the way Louisiana is positing, it seems to me that you have, I think, uh, more than five votes for the proposition that something went horribly wrong here, right?
2: I think that's right. Um, I feel I feel pretty confident about the ultimate outcome. I think that uh, certainly justices Kagan and Sotomayor and Ginsburg seemed to be, I think pretty strongly on Mr. McCoy's side. I think the chief justice and justice Gorsuch, uh, were as well. Um, cause I think they shared this sense of uh, this, there was a substitution of goals. Um, justice Kennedy was actually strangely quiet during this argument. Um, he had, I think only one question, uh, for, uh, the state's counsel, which was basically asking if their position would entail, would require, uh, uh, would allow an attorney to override a, dissent, a defendant's decision to plead guilty or not, which I think suggests that he was pretty skeptical of their position as well. So, um, I, I, I'm, I'm confident about the ultimate outcome. I think it's it's a much more open question about, uh, how far they go, how they write the opinion. I think there was certainly uh, a lot of a lot of testing of Mr. McCoy's position as well in terms of kind of where, how to draw the lines. Um, one of the, uh, one, one of the big, I think, open questions is whether, uh, the the proposed rule here about not admitting guilt would apply to individual elements of a crime as opposed to the entire crime itself. So, for instance, if you had a defendant uh, or if you had an attorney saying, well, this element, I admit, is satisfied. He did commit this act, but he didn't have the right mental state, so you can't find him guilty. I think that's a closer question. Uh, it's, It's certainly not the one presented here because here you had his attorney's squarely saying my client is guilty of second degree murder. Um, so I think there are some there are some line drawing questions and I'll be curious to see how the court addresses that. Uh, but I don't think you have to get into all those details to decide this case.
0: And it's probably worth flagging that Justice Alito was uh, so throwing forth reasons that, you know, maybe he wasn't, uh, f- you know, uh, fit, uh, that he was trying to find some other way to get out of this hole, right?
2: I think that's right. He he had some questions about, you know, w- w- why did it even get to this point, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't the proper remedy have been just, you know, con- a continuance or getting him new counsel or letting him represent himself? Um, and, and I think that that's a, you know, I think that's a fair question. Uh, and I think most of the time that would probably, probably be sufficient. But uh, this, kind of, this kind of thing actually comes up more often than you might expect. I mean, there are a number of lower court cases that have similar, uh, similar facts where at trial you have a conflict between the defendant and his attorney on whether to admit guilt. So I, I think it is important that there be a clear rule from the court to address the scenario, even if it's not going to come up all that often.
0: Jay, I want to play you one last bit of audio, um, and I think it is in some ways the emotional high point uh, or low point, I don't know, of, of the argument. And it's Justice Breyer uh, talking about, um, you know, folks walking themselves right into the death chamber. So let's have a listen.
1: Because a large percentage of the people that insist on representing themselves, particularly in death cases, are going to walk right into the death, uh, the, the death chamber. A lot of the people there are just not really capable of managing their own defense.
0: And I think I also want to play uh, Sonia Sotomayor responding uh, and saying that's okay. And she says people can walk themselves into jail.
1: They can walk themselves, regrettably, into the gas chamber, but they have a right to tell their story.
0: Is this sort of narratively about... Uh, on the one hand, Justice Breyer is worried. He's saying, "You don't have a right to tell your own story if you're walking yourself right into into uh, lethal injection." And 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 correspondingly, Son- Sonia Sotomayor making what feels like a kind of libertarian argument, saying, "It's still your story." That's that's what everybody focused on yesterday, right? That tension.
2: I think that's right, and I think it really does it does go to a kind of deep philosophical question about what. We're doing with our criminal justice system, and who sort of who gets to decide these fundamental questions? Um, and, and I think that you know, from a I think sort of libertarian or just sort of general kind of like autonomy perspective, uh, you know, defendants are allowed to make decisions that put themselves at risk. Uh, and I think that this is reflected in uh, a, a lot of areas of our jurisprudence. It's certainly reflected in the self representation cases. We know that defendants have the right to represent themselves. Even though, you know, of course, most of the time, most defendants are not going to represent themselves as well as uh, attorneys might. Um, There's, I think, a fabulous quote from uh, Justice Scalia uh, in a case, uh, Martinez, um, which where he is concurring. This is about self-representation. He says, our system of laws generally presumes that the criminal defendant, after being fully informed, knows his own best interests and does not need them dictated by the state. Any other approach is unworthy of a free people. Uh, and I think that that is kind of the sentiment that Justice Sotomayor is expressing is that, yes, you can put yourself at risk. But ultimately, you know, we have a live in a free society and our constitution is based around individual liberty and autonomy. And you get to make that call. Uh, and I think the fact that there are such serious consequences here is all the more reason to trust that the defendant knows what their own objectives are. Uh, I think the chief justice got into this, by, you know, he asked very clearly, you know, what if a defendant says, you know, life in prison is worse? You know, I I don't want to spend life in prison as an admitted murderer. I'd I'd rather be executed. So, you know, I want to take any chance, however small I have, of exoneration. Uh, You know, that's a value judgment. And I think a free society and a liberal criminal justice system, we have to let individuals make their own value judgments.
0: And and what's the answer, Jay, to the question about, you know, Mr. English has decades of expertise and that he maybe does know better. He knows better how to talk to a jury. The answer is just he knows better. He should express his opinion and then he needs to back away and, and let, as Justice Breyer says, let his client march into the death chamber.
2: So I think that he knows better on the how question, right? He knows the law. He knows how to make legal arguments. He knows how to challenge, present, or, or challenge evidence. He knows how to file motions. Uh, on all these sort of questions of legal tactics and legal procedure, uh, certainly he does know better. And it's precisely because of that expertise that we uh, guarantee defendants the right to appointed counsel. Um, he doesn't know better on what Mr. McCoy's goals and values should be. Um, I don't think that's a question about law. That's a question about, you know, th- those questions may turn on your sort of philosophical or religious beliefs about death and redemption, uh, about your relationships with friends and family, the value you place on your own integrity, uh, inner knowledge of your own culpability. Um, that, that is the set of issues that determines uh, how to weigh the risk of a capital sentence. And there, um, I don't think lawyers know better than defendants. I think every individual is going to have a different take on that very difficult question. And the job of a lawyer is to consult with your client, uh, advise them on all of the sort of legal procedural questions where you do have expertise. And then ultimately, you know, take their answer about what their objectives are. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of clients, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an attorney and I can, I can say, you know, a lot of clients are, are difficult clients. You don't have to, uh, be, you know it it is the usual case not the rare case where a client's goals or 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 perspective you know make the attorney's job more difficult too bad you know that's that's your job as a professional is to is to handle that and respond to that appropriately and not to substitute what you think is best for the client
0: Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst with the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. He filed an amicus brief in this case, McCoy versus Louisiana. And Jay, I want to thank you for uh, taking us through uh, what is surely the most bracingly ontological podcast of amicus we've ever had. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you very much, Dolly. It was a pleasure.
0: The Double X GabFest is a bi-weekly podcast about feminism, gender, sexuality, health, politics, Beyonce, and other issues of burning interest to women and their friends. It is hosted by Invisibilia co-host Hannah Rosen, New York magazine's Noreen Malone, and managing producer of Slate Podcast June Thomas. Every other Thursday, get a heaping helping of feminist discourse about news and culture in your podcast feed in the Double X GabFest. Check out the most recent episode Probing the Burning Question Oprah 2020 and the feminist generation gap in the Me Too movement. Download and subscribe to the Double X Gap Fest wherever you find your podcasts. Joining us now is somebody I have wanted to have on this podcast um, since the first day. Uh, And that is Linda Greenhouse. Uh, She covered the U.S. Supreme Court for nearly three decades for The New York Times. She won a Pulitzer Prize for it, and she's still a contributing writer at The New York Times. She's also uh, the Joseph Goldstein lecturer-in-law, senior research scholar-in-law, and Knight Distinguished Journalist in Residence Uh, at Yale Law School, and her book, Just a Journalist on the Press, Life, and the Spaces Between, came out last fall. Longest bio ever. Sorry, Linda, welcome to the show.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Dahlia.
0: And there's about a million things I want to ask you, but I think I want to start by asking you to explain something that comes up almost every episode of this podcast, but never gets fleshed out. Can, can you describe the U.S. Solicitor General's office for us? You've watched it over many administrations, over uh, many, many different presidents and different uh, ideologies. Can you try for listeners who we talk about it, but don't understand what that institution is? Can you tell us what this entity is and how it's different uh, from other more political branches of government?
1: Sure. So the Solicitor General's office is located in the Department of Justice. The Solicitor General is a presidential nominee confirmed by the Senate, and he or she is the only federal official who by statute is required to be, quote, learned in the law. So even Supreme Court justices, there's nothing in the Constitution or statute that requires them to be lawyers. But the Solicitor General has to be a lawyer, and the SG, as that person is called, is the government's top appellate lawyer. The office, which is really small, about 20 lawyers, most of whom are career civil servants, almost all of whom are, uh, represents the government in the Supreme Court and also in the courts of appeals in the sense that uh, no government appeal can go forward without the permission of the SG's office. They vet anytime time the government loses uh, they look and see whether that's a case worthy of appeal to some higher court. And uh, in the case of the DACA Dreamer case that's rattling around, uh, they've decided they want to jump over the appeals court, the Ninth Circuit, and go right to the Supreme Court. We'll see how that turns out. So, so
0: I, I think that the thing that is slightly foreign, in, we we assert it when we talk about the SG's office, In the Trump era, switching sides, impending cases, you know, we're in a case on one side. Oh, we're on the other side. Or, you know, we've taken one position with respect to voter purges for decades, but we're flipping. And I think a lot of listeners get confused, Linda, about why shouldn't they flip? Why shouldn't uh, the SG's office just take a different posture? It's a different president. And we've had other folks on the show just say it's not done But I would love for you to explain to people who don't understand why we are so hung up on the appearance that this office is objective, given that it's part of the Justice Department. It has to go where it's told to go. Why this tension and why when we talk about it and we say, you know, John Roberts really hates it when the SG's office flips sides. Is this just an illusion or is this something that Matters systemically and institutionally to have consistency in this office,
1: well, I think not all cases are the same, and it's not accurate to say that it isn't done. Um, it is done uh, to some degree, probably by every administration because the the line between law and politics at this level is a very thin and and porous one. But I think there's a difference, for instance, between changing sides in a case that simply implicates policy or changing sides in a case where you're you're suddenly telling the court that a precedent that the office has uh, adhered to and respected for many years uh is now worthless and should be overturned by the Supreme Court that's that's a pending case right now in the labor law area uh, so it's, it's happened quite a lot in the last few months. And I guess the Solicitor General always has to make a judgment, uh, about the office's reputation before the court. It's the most frequent repeat player. Uh, it's the most likely to get its appeal heard by the Supreme Court. Uh, the court will grant a Solicitor General appeal at the rate of about 85%. And for everybody else, it's about one and a half percent. So this is a reputation that, you know, was many years in the making. Uh, it's not that hard to destroy a reputation uh, much more quickly than it takes to, to build one. And so if the court comes to see the SG as simply another political player from the executive branch, I think that's an institutional problem going forward for the office.
0: And is it an institutional problem? I guess this is underpinning what I am trying to figure out. It's an institutional problem for the court, too, right? Or at least for John Roberts, who prizes these ideas of stability and of credibility. Or will the court just get over it? It it, it seems to me as though, you know, and I know this is the, the refrain that we all assert norms, norms. This is just a norm, right? John Roberts will recover from a very politicized SG's office, no?
1: Well, sure, you know, we're all going to live through this. Um, he comes at it, he was a deputy solicitor general, so he has a stake in the reputation, the integrity of the office. Uh, also, I think the, the the court relies on the solicitor general's office for, to be a straight shooter. Uh, you know, when there's a conflict in the in the lower courts, a conflict in the circuits, that makes a case worthy of taking up to the Supreme Court. I mean, every, every lawyer asserts there's a conflict in the circuits, and that's why you should hear my case. Well, maybe there is, and maybe there isn't a real conflict. But if the Solicitor General says there's a conflict, the court wants to be able to rely on that, wants to be able to rely on uh, the statements of facts and, and, and the statements of... Uh, where precedent should lead the court. So if that gets eroded, um, it's a problem for the SG and it's a problem for the court, certainly. You you mentioned this earlier, but let's
0: circle back and and, um, tease it out, Linda. You mentioned that the Justice Department on Tuesday said that it was going to take the very rare step of asking the Supreme Court to just skip a step and uh, overturn a judicial ruling In the DACA case. Uh, I think, again, we've got a a lower court judgment. It's a pretty dramatic judgment. And this is uh, the Justice Department simply saying, we don't need to go through the Ninth Circuit. Let's just leapfrog it up to the High Court. How rare is that?
1: It's pretty rare. And uh, of course, all the SG can do is ask. And what the court can do is say, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And if Listeners have any spare cash sitting around and uh, some handy bookie uh, with whom they'd like to place a bet. Uh, this is not going to happen. The court's not going to accept that invitation. Uh, it, it's um, the the politics of it are pretty blatant. I mean, the administration has not fared well in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, that's where the uh, the travel ban, the first and second Muslim travel ban, uh, came out of, and uh, the president has denounced the Ninth Circuit. And uh, it happens that this litigation, this DACA litigation was brought in the federal district court in, in San Francisco within the Ninth Circuit. And uh, what the administration appears to be doing is thumbing its nose at the Ninth Circuit and thinking that it may be able to count on five friends at the Supreme Court. The court wasn't born last night. And I think it doesn't want to be uh, used as a political football uh in this way, and actually um, the uh, order that Judge William Alsop, a very fine judge uh, issued in joining the termination of the DACA, of the DACA Dreamers program uh, is very sound. Um, I've read it, I urge people to find it on the internet. You can download it, it's 49 pages. It's actually a fascinating and brilliant piece of administrative law. Uh, understanding and uh and and also it's it's what we call interlocutory it's not a final judgment so it's even uh less worthy of the supreme court's attention in this posture uh, than an ordinary case that has gone to final judgment so uh, no the court's not going to take this
0: so so that leads me to a question i've been wanting to hear you talk about for months and that is The Supreme Court initially, when uh, handed the travel ban to deal with in June, uh, surprised, I think, at least some of us by splitting the baby, right, saying we're going to let some of the travel ban uh, go forward. We're going to enjoin some of it and we're going to ask you to hustle this case to us uh, quickly in October. And then what we saw this fall seemed to be, I don't know. If it's travel ban fatigue or – but for the first time we saw even uh, two liberal judges – I'm sorry. For the first time we saw two liberal justices uh, flip over and say, yeah, no, I think – I think we can live with some version of the new one. Uh, are the justices getting worn out like the rest of us? Is is there a possibility? I think I've called it on this show outrage fatigue, where if the administration just keeps refining, sanding down, fixing slightly and tweaking uh, versions of the travel ban or other uh, Things that they did poorly at first, but they do better and better. That the court just at some point says, "Okay, we're fine, good, go." And that is that how this is going to progress? But at least at the high court level.
1: Well, I mean the the honest answer is I'm not sure. But but there's another side of the coin to what the court did when it let uh, Travel Ban Point Three uh, uh, take effect, which is in that same order. It says something like, uh, we expect that the two lower courts in which this case resides, uh, marching toward final judgment, will act very promptly and uh, arguments are set. The order said, you know, within the next couple of weeks, I think it was, uh, and those courts are moving forward. So it kind of reminded me of what went on uh, back in the Guantanamo years when um, the court was very... Eager to hear from the DC Circuit, from the Federal Court of Appeals in DC, um, on what eventually became the Boumedian case. Uh, the court wants to, you know, fully inform itself before it makes a, a really major decision. So I, I actually didn't see outrage fatigue in that. I saw a, a more strategic judgment that, uh, you know, maybe once we see the full dimensions of whatever this, uh, travel van 3.0 is uh and we can't quite tell right now uh we'll have a a better purchase on it i i thought it was you know pretty pretty sound actually
0: Um, And and now I want you to tee up a case that I think listeners maybe don't know enough about, and that's uh, the NIFLA case. This is the crisis pregnancy center case that the court is going to hear this spring. Uh, I think if you asked most people if there was a case that had anything to do with abortion on the docket this uh, year, they'd say, nah, uh, but actually there is. uh, And I think it's a pretty consequential case. Do you mind uh, sort of teeing up for listeners
1: what uh, is at issue in that case? Sure. So this is the case at the intersection of uh, abortion law and uh, the First Amendment. That's a pretty tricky place to be. So uh, people may be familiar with the so-called crisis pregnancy centers, CPCs, which hold themselves out. You know, if you see a, a placard in the subway or whatever, this is, you know, pregnant, need help, call us. Well, if you call us, uh, it's, it's an entity, uh, the purpose of which is, in fact, to discourage women from having abortions, which means, of course, they will have babies. So uh, these entities, and there are hundreds and hundreds of them, there are uh, several hundred in the state of California alone. So the California legislature passed a law called the FACT, the acronym is the FACT Act, F-A-C-T, FACT, uh, that uh, has has two parts to it. Two, for a, a crisis pregnancy clinic that actually is not any kind of clinic in the sense that it has no medical personnel on the premises, Uh, they have to post a sign that says, by the way, uh, dear would-be patient, uh, there are no doctors here and there are no medical services provided. For those clinics that actually do have medical personnel who do things like sonograms and pregnancy tests and and, and so on, uh, they have to post a notice that says, uh, Dear patient, um, you're here. Uh, if by chance you decide you want to terminate this pregnancy, uh, California has a program in place. If you cannot afford to pay for an abortion, uh, California will, uh, will help you pay for it. Uh, call this number 24-7. And this has to be either posted or handed out to people as they walk in. So the question in both of these uh, parts of this law are, is this compelled speech? Are these entities that don't wish to provide this information uh, to the people who walk in the door being forced to be the carriers, the transmitters of a government message that they don't choose to transmit? And, you know, there's pretty robust First Amendment law about compelled speech. You can't have, there's an old, uh, old, case from New Hampshire on the slogan on the license plate, you can't be forced to have it on your car if you don't agree with it and this kind of thing. On the other hand, of course, it's um, a matter of consumer protection. Uh, government has the right, or we hope it has the right uh, to make sure that consumers are informed as to what they're getting into. So the ninth circuit uh, upheld this law against a challenge brought by a chain of these crisis pregnancy centers Uh, courts in other parts of the country, including very recently, uh, the Fourth Circuit in the, in the Southeast, uh, has struck down, uh, one of these laws, a law from Maryland. Um, so there's a, you know, pretty, pretty powerful, uh, debate going on over this. And, uh, I don't think I'd like to put a bet on, on the outcome of this case. So, so I, I
0: You have written about – and I know Mark Stern and I at Slate have written about this case as maybe this isn't the worst thing in the world uh, because it could certainly – even if the court – uh, were to say, you know, the Fact Act is unconstitutional, maybe it could have implications for all the mandatory scripts that have false information that physicians have to read in other jurisdictions. So maybe it could accidentally redound to the benefit of, you know, if we're going to say we don't want to be compelled to say things that are false, then doesn't that cut both ways? Does that hold any water for you?
1: Uh, yes, I think it does. I mean, there are uh, laws that have been upheld. Um uh, the the one that really comes to mind never reached the Supreme Court because uh the court was just viewed by the abortion rights community as not a friendly environment, but a law that requires doctors before they actually perform the abortion to kind of read a script to patients that says if you go through with this uh you'll be at greater risk for suicide and uh you know all kinds of dire consequences, which uh in numerous peer-reviewed studies, uh, have been shown to be not true, not true at all. Uh, and this was challenged on compelled speech First Amendment grounds, and uh, it was upheld by a federal appeals court. So uh, the, there's, there is more at stake in this case in terms of, of the role of the First Amendment in the abortion context, uh, it definitely is.
0: Is this case – I class this in almost with the Masterpiece Cake Shop in that it's kind of a speech case, but it's also kind of a religion case. And even though the religious claims uh, have fallen out of this case, there's a way in which uh, these speech claims become some kind of speech plus or speech – I don't know what, but speech that is different from regular speech simply because uh, the uh, speaker has religious objections. Is that? A fair characterization, Linda, and I I guess the the deeper question is when it has this valence that is about faith uh, that these crisis pregnancy centers cannot be forced to say something because their message is abortion is always bad and you should always carry to term, does the court reckon with that differently because there is this faith piece of it, even if it's fallen out of the case by the time it formally is argued?
1: Well, religion is a tough issue for the court. Uh, that is for sure, and uh, you know we've got the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which only Justice John Paul Stevens, and of course he's no longer serving, uh, regarded as itself a violation of the Establishment Clause because it privileged it privileges present tense uh, religious claims above all others. Uh, but there, he had no no company uh, uh, for that. So in in this. Uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center case, the uh, petitioners, the centers, brought two questions to the court uh, saying the law both violates our First uh, First Amendment speech rights and our First Amendment uh, free exercise free exercise of religion rights, and the court granted only on speech. Uh, now, why that was, uh, the court kicked this case around for several weeks before deciding to take it and limiting the grant. Uh, maybe those who who take a dim view of, of the regulation at issue think they have a better chance of counting to five votes when it's pure speech. And, uh, the religion claim would just maybe not so clear what the outcome would be. I don't know, but, um, but you're quite right. There's a religious valence to, uh, almost everything that has to do with abortion. So, um, that's, that's the, the kind of unspoken overlay on many of these cases.
0: Such an interesting time. Linda, I have to ask you before I let you go about your book, because I think one of the things that uh, is so striking about it, and and I should say here that, you know, I've known you forever and ever. And I, um, you know, used to walk out of oral arguments and uh, people would say to me, Dahlia, I can't write this. You need to write this uh, because you get to write about opinion. And I, Uh, always think about the fact that you so, I think, carefully cabined your opinions and your views away from uh, what you wrote, which was, I think, really striving to be objective. And and I think your book is wrestling with that theme and how much obligation we have. I always thought it was so amazing that uh, the smartest people about the Supreme Court couldn't write what they really thought in that press room. But I wonder how much the advent—I know you started the book before Trump and and then finished it during Trump— but how much the advent of the Trump age uh, has shaped your thinking on this question of, you know, he says, she says, and false equivalency and the parody that is such a part of the way we report on the court, and how much uh, this would have been a really different book if Hillary Clinton had been elected
1: the The experience the, the mainstream media's response to the advent of Donald Trump actually hasn't changed my own views. I've been writing and talking about this actually for for years that the the kind of norm of uh, uh, you know the phony equivalents and the he said she said and there's two sides to every story, even if there's really only one side or there's 25 side, sides of a complicated story, and that kind of thing. Uh, I've been complaining about that for, for a long time. What's so fascinating about the Trump era is that the mainstream media finally had to wrestle with this and decide when it simply wasn't enough to accurately quote somebody telling a lie uh, because, you know, the quote's accurate so nobody can say, you know, I demand a correction uh, but looking looking to what the readers are entitled to learn from a news report written by uh, smart, informed journalists, uh, are you going to be disabled from saying, by the way, dear reader, uh, I'm quoting accurately uh, something that this newsmaker said, but what he said simply is not true. And it's just been the, the book the kind of central chapter in the book chronicles the, um, the, the, through the lens of, of looking at the New York Times mostly, um, how the mainstream media came to terms with this. And, and it ends with a question, which is, uh, has something changed in the media's DNA because of this? Or is it pretty much Trump era specific? And when Trump passes from the scene, uh, will, will we all revert back to our uh, back to our habits.
0: And of course, this is the same anxiety that um, you've written so often about John Roberts trying. Uh, as chief to maintain institutional respect for the court, to maintain the appearance that it's above politics. And one of the things that is so striking is that this anxiety that you're describing, that The New York Times is feeling, that I feel, uh, this need to be fair, to not call people liars, uh, the need to give credence to arguments on both sides, even when they're kind of crazy, Uh, but, but, but that this is exactly the thing that John Roberts struggles with.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, he's he's got a problem on his hands. Uh, He's got people on that court, and sometimes certainly including himself, if you think back a few years to Shelby County, the voting rights case, which which, which he wrote, uh, who would like to harness the engine of the Supreme Court to change the status quo in certain ways that map onto uh, the political desires of the party and the presidents who put these individuals there. So this is really the, the first time in modern history, I, I wouldn't be so bold as to say ever in US history, where the ideology of the justices on this polarized court reflects the ideology of the president and the party who put each of those justices there. Uh, that has not historically been our model. You know, I mean, Earl Warren and William Brennan were Eisenhower appointees and so on. Uh, So it puts the court in a dangerous place. And John Roberts is a student of history, and he knows that as well as you and I do. And he's got to decide um, uh, what he wants to do about it. Linda Greenhouse covered the U.S. Supreme Court for almost 30 years.
0: She was one of the first people in the press room who was nice to me. She won a Pulitzer for her work in 1998. Dahlia, I hope I have many years to be nice to you. No, but I remember Linda staggering in there, just having, like, looking as though I'd been bonked on the head, and you were kind right from the (laughs) get-go. Linda's still a contributing writer at the New York Times and teaches uh, at Yale Law School. Her amazing book, just a journalist on the press, Life and the Spaces Between, came out this fall. Linda, what a joy to have you on Amicus. Thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure.
0: And that is going to do it for today's episode of Amicus. Our email is, as ever, amicus at slate.com, and you can find us at Facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Please keep your letters and your thoughts and even your complaints and your critiques coming. We love to hear from you. We try really hard to write back. Transcripts for this show are always available to Slate Plus members. And what better way to support journalism? Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with you in two short weeks for another episode of Amicus.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?